following story is told of a woman pilot who decided she wanted to expand her resume and learn how to fly a helicopter, so she proceeded down to the local airport only to discover that the only helicopter at that particular airport was a solo helicopter. Well, the instructor figured he could probably let her go up since she was already licensed to fly uh, small planes and he could instruct her via radio. And so she got into the helicopter and off she went. She reached about 1,000 feet and everything was going well. She reached 2,000 feet and the woman instructor continued to talk via radio and everything was going great. She got to 3,000 feet and all of a sudden the helicopter just dropped like a rock out of the sky. The instructor couldn't figure out what happened. He jumped in his Jeep. He drove to the area that he knew that she was, and there she was getting out of the helicopter. And he said, what happened? She said, well, at 1,000 feet, everything was going great, and at 2,000 feet, things were going wonderful. And, but when I got to 3,000 feet, I started to get cold, so I shut off the ceiling fan. <laughs> so anybody with a wife who gets cold will understand that, you know... Sometimes things like that happen, but, you know, the point is sometimes it's easy to miss the obvious, and uh, I believe that's exactly what Dr. Luke has been trying to emphasize to us as it relates to the religious leader's failure to recognize the identity and of, uh, of Jesus and also his authority. You know, the theme of Jesus' authority shouts loudly over chapters 4 through 6 of Luke's gospel, extending through the text that we'll examine today where it culminates. And throughout those passages, Luke emphasizes his authority over Satan, over demons, over disease. We see his, his teaching was with great authority, and it just was overwhelming, and, and people were amazed and astonished that one could speak with such authority. And also, it also was demonstrated by powerful, uh, by powerful signs, what the Bible calls miracle signs and wonders. That you know, the authority of Jesus to forgive sins was also coupled with his healing and summarized with this sovereign declaration. If you recall, Jesus said, but that you may know. And the word is to know by experience, to know with certainty without, beyond a shadow of a doubt. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, he says, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And we're told that those who witnessed this were all seized, literally gripped by amazement, astonishment, and they began glorifying God. In fact, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, you'll notice in uh, chapter uh, 5, this following occurred when Jesus, in, in uh, Luke chapter 5, as Jesus went to, the, uh, went to Levi and his assertion of authority and his calling of this arch sinner who is Levi to become his follower. You know, the, the authority uh, theme carries on in Jesus' claim that he's the divine bridegroom, if you'll notice in chapter 5 at the end in verse 34 and 35. And that the implicit, he's the implicit giver of what he illustrated as a new wine. He was talking about God's grace. That he came in to usher an, an era of grace. The law led to grace. And we see that. And that in, in chapter 6, you know, his divine authority, his sovereign declaration is found in verse 5 where he says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, in the verses that we're going to look at today in 12 through 16 of chapter 6, 
we're going to find that in these, in these passages, Jesus' calling of the 12 apostles is kind of the theme and peaks his authority to be able to call or choose men for his purposes. And as we look at this, it was an act that was a, that absolutely a momentous importance for the nation of Israel specifically, and later, as we'll see, for the church uh, in, in general, and that is that the 12 apostles were named implicitly to go and to preach the gospel to the 12 tribes of Israel. Later, we'll see in the book of Revelation that these 12 apostles will have their names in the very foundation of the new city, the new Jerusalem that God has in store as we look forward to what his promises are in the future. So the call of the 12 in this particular passage uh, gives us an opportunity to reflect on where and how Jesus got his authority, how he made important decisions in his life, and also the effect of his authority upon the lives of his followers. And that's basically the simple outline that will follow if you've got it in front of you in the bulletin. We'll go through it that way. But if you're there, let's look at verses 12 through 16 where we clearly see Jesus' authority to call or to choose men for his purposes. In verse 12, we read these words. And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, And Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was also called the Zealot. Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. In this particular passage, this short passage, we're going to look at two main thoughts. First is uh, his supplication, Jesus' supplication to the Father that we see in verse 12. And the second thing is his selection of the followers, specifically these 12 that he names apostles. If you'll notice in verse 12, we're told that it was at this time. You know, it's important to understand the backdrop, understand the climate of the day, understand what was going on culturally. We see that Jesus' reputation has preceded him in almost every place that he goes. We're told that there was a rumor or an echo or a thunder or a roar. And you can see the momentum that's beginning to build up as Jesus is healing people. He identifies himself as the Savior, and people begin to talk about it. And then he demonstrates through the power of these signs, wonders, these miracles, that he is who he claims to be because the Old Testament said, how will we know the Savior? Well, he will do things that only God can do, and he'll do them through this particular man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, he was identified, he was, uh, he was, the stamp of God was upon him because of the things that he did, they knew who he was, and people began to talk, and the roar got louder and louder, and the opportunities for ministry got greater and greater as people heard, they continued to come to him to hear him teach the truth of God's message with authority like no one else had ever heard, and to see this authority demonstrated by physical healings or signs that he was who he claimed to be, and he had the authority to to do the things that he was saying. Now, at the same time, we also have been learning that there has been rising opposition. And so as we see God moving in the hearts and the lives of people through Jesus Christ, we also see opposition to this movement of God. And as I read this, I'm comforted to know 
that whenever God is moving, whenever God is doing something, whenever God is reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, when lives are changed and transformed, people are growing in the knowledge of Christ. They're growing in the knowledge of God, their Savior. They're growing in the knowledge of who they are as believers. And they start to apply those things to their life. Expect opposition. I'll put it this way. There is no impact without collision. Every time I watch a football game, it's a spiritual illustration. Ladies, I just want you to know that when your husband is watching football this fall, he is learning many spiritual truths <laughs> that he doesn't realize until I tell him what it is that he's learning. But that's all right because we're seeing the same thing. And you got to understand, you know, every time I look at it, it's like I watch a football game and you got the offense, they're trying to move, and you got the defense is trying to stop it. And, and there's always these, these, these impacts that are made, and there's no impact without a collision. And so I just want to comfort you to know that there will never be an impact for the cause of Christ through your life and in the area in which he has you without there being a collision with the forces of opposition. We need to get away from the naive notion that somehow or another God wants us to live this pleasurable, happy, wonderful, uh, opposition-free existence, and that will come in eternity. That will come in His presence. That will come in the new Jerusalem. That will come in the new heavens and the new earth. But until then, expect tribulation, expect opposition, expect hardship to come. If God is using you mightily for His purposes, because the world hates him. And he clearly told his disciples, don't be surprised when the world hates you because it hates me and will shortly put me to death. If you are a young person in high school or younger than that and you're trying to live a life that's pleasing to God, expect opposition. When you don't go along with having sex before marriage, when you don't go along with drinking and drugs and all the rest that goes out there, when you say, I'm not going to do those things, don't expect to be embraced and hugged by people and say, wow, we're so proud of you because you have a value system that we wish that we had. Don't be naive and don't expect it. As adults, the same thing is true. When you won't lie and cheat or steal to make an extra buck for your company, don't expect it to be embraced by people who say, man, we're so glad you work for us. Unless you've got a godly person who owns that company, a godly person who manages that business, don't expect to be embraced if it means it's going to cost a couple of bucks to do that which is right before God. See, it's in this time that the opposition arose. And it was in this time the opposition arose because God was at work and it was evident. None of us should be surprised when opposition arises against God's church, whether it's cancer in my case, whether it's struggles in your case, whatever it is, expect the opposition. But I also know this, what the enemy means for evil, God overcomes for good. And what the opposition thinks will stop God in his tracks. The very cross of Jesus Christ, it was prophesied that the devil would bruise Jesus' heel, but he, the devil, would have his head crushed at the same time. He thought putting Jesus to death would end the message of God, but the resurrection continues it to this day. See, you know, it was in such a time as this, in such a time that you and I live, 
that we've got to recognize and understand that those who are called and chosen by God to make an impact in their culture, in their community, in their businesses, in their family, in their schools, on their teams, with their friends, with their neighbors, with their relatives, expect opposition. But greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. I know how it turns out. It's like watching a football game. You already know how it turns out. And you watch it, and guess what? All the anxiety is gone. Oh, it's fourth and one. Are they going to make it? And, you, you know, when you're watching it with somebody who hasn't seen it, and you're like, I'll bet you a 1000 bucks they do. You know, whatever, you know. It's kind of like, you know, don't even worry. What are you getting all nervous about? They're going to make it. Well, how do you know? Is this a repeat? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you'll see the Angel games, you know, they'll be on the next day, and it's kind of like, oh, it's all nerve-wracking, bases loaded, two strikes. What's going to happen? He's going to get a double, and we're going to score three runs. Well, you seem so sure. I am. Like, are you a prophet? No, I saw it yesterday. And it's like, I read the book. You know, we've read the book. We know how it turns out. We know that God is victorious. We know that Jesus Christ reigns. We know that he comes again and establishes his kingdom. We know one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We know that when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord for those who have repented of sin and responded by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection. We know the promises of God. So what are we getting all shook up and nervous about in living out our lives day to day? And that's what this passage as a backdrop is going to help us to recognize and understand. And that's why we see the first thing that Luke points out is Jesus' ongoing dependency on God the Father. His supplication to the Father is found in verse 12. And it was at this time, with all this going on, with head roads being made in the kingdom of God and opposition arising and coming out in the open, and the battle was very clear to everybody, with all this going on, Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. He went off to the mountain to pray. Throughout Luke's account of the life of Jesus Christ, we're struck by Jesus' prayer life. To date, Luke has identified a pattern. If you'll look back at chapter 3, we'll see some of the things that we've already seen before, but we'll see it in a new light. And in chapter 3, in verse 21 and 22, if you recall, he says, Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, fulfilling the prophecy, Thou art my beloved Son, and in Thee I'm well pleased. As Jesus was praying, the heavens opened up, and I like that word picture. As we go to God in prayer, the heavens are opened up for us, and answers are forthcoming. In Luke chapter 4, we see the same thing in verse 42, if you'll look at that. And when day came, he departed. And this was after the confrontation where he had healed many people. He healed Simon's mother-in-law of a high fever, a fatal fever that she had. See, he rebuked the fever and all who had any sickness or various diseases came and were brought to him. He laid his hands on every one of them and he was healing them. And demons also were coming out and he was rebuking them. And when day came after this opposition with the enemy... We're told he departed and went to a lonely place. And the multitudes were searching for him and came to him. But he had gone away to a lonely place. And we'll find out as we look at our passage and also in chapter 5, once again in verse 15 and 16, 
But the news, there it is again, about him again. The news about Jesus, the rumor spread, the word was on the streets, there was a roar, there was a thunder, there was a gaining of an understanding of who he is, was spreading even further and great multitudes were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. And in contrast to this momentum, in contrast to this big scene, we're told that he himself would often slip away to the wilderness, that place of isolation, and pray. He would go to pray. It was Jesus' custom not only to go to the synagogue where he would worship and also teach, but also it was his custom to get away by himself to pray. Jesus understood that if he was going to accomplish his Father's will, to seek and to save that which was lost, it was necessary to get away for private times of prayer. In these verses we learn about what I will call dependent prayer. The word dependent means to look outside oneself for support or for help. To look outside oneself for support or for help. The question that arose as I was studying this and the question I'd ask of you today is how many of you here are in the midst of making a decision or decisions and are struggling with what to do and how to go about it? I would hope that it's every one of us because decisions must be made every day. For some, it may relate to your marriage. What are we going to do? Are we going to continue to ignore some of the things? Or are we going to deal with it? Are we going to face it head up? Are we going to get help? Or are we going to lean upon ourselves to try to figure out when it's obvious that, you know what, we haven't been able to do it so far, and I think we need to get some godly counsel. We need to go beyond ourselves. We need to lean on someone else's expertise because none of us are experts in everything in life. We need to go outside of ourselves and say, you know what, we need help, but we want godly, Christ-centered, biblical-based help. What does the Word of God have to say about how we're struggling in our marriage or with our family or in our, in our children or some area of life? Maybe it's a struggle of a decision to make over a job or career or education matters or perhaps health issues, or financial concerns, or yours may be a spiritual matter, as all of those things are, but a specific spiritual matter as God is working in your life, seeking to draw you to himself, convicting you of sin and your need to repent and to trust in him in that area of life. Perhaps you keep going back, as, as, as the Bible says, we go back and we, we slop in the mud once again, as pigs go back to the mud to slop in it. You've lost the sense of what the Bible teaches that when you've come to faith in Christ, you identify with his death and his burial. You have died to self and you're resurrected to the newness of life and you now walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You forget what lies behind and you press on now to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You're struggling with continuing to go back because it's comfortable back here to make excuses for disobedience to God. And you're not trusting that you are born again and you're a new creature in God's sight. And old things pass away and all things become new. We go back to the victim mentality of life. Well, this is, I struggle with this. This is how I was raised. This is what I was taught. This is the environment that I lived in. I don't know how to live as a godly man or a godly woman because this is all that I know. Well, forget all of that. You've died to that. You no longer live to that. 
You no longer continue to present yourself that as instruments of sin and unrighteousness, as Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 6, but now you live to present yourself as instruments of righteousness to God. Old things pass away. That's everything. And all things become new. That's everything. The point is simple. When facing decisions that must be made, Jesus demonstrated a dependent prayer life. He went directly to his Father for the answers. And it was at this time, in this midst of a decision that needed to be made, in this midst of dealing with the issues that were at hand, he went off to the mountain to pray. The question is a very logical one, and that is, how do you determine, how do I determine God's will for my life, for your life, what it is that he wants you to do in the midst of whatever it is that you're struggling with? I have learned over time that folks employ all kinds of interesting tactics to determine what it is that God wants them to do. I often hear Christians talk about throwing out a fleece before God. We're going to throw out something before God, and God, your answer will be so supernatural that even I, as a man, cannot miss it. It'll be so evident to me that it's beyond any kind of a reasonable shadow of a doubt that, God, this is the direction that you want us to go. Give you an example that this past week I was talking to one of our elders about the property and about the financing, about some of the issues that were going on. And we talked about the idea of, well, you know, do we need to throw out a fleece so that God can make it very clear to us that this is clearly his direction or is it leading? This is, you know, it's a huge decision. And as we were talking about this and going back and forth, we talked about it for about 45 minutes to an hour. And later that afternoon, I checked my voicemail on the cell phone. And at the exact same time that he and I were talking, I got a, friend, a call from a friend of ours. He and his wife called and said, Chuck, I just want to let you know we've been praying about this. And God has put it, us on our, put it on our heart, and we're going to send you a check for $300,000 toward the construction of your new building. Now, see, I, I don't know about you. <laughs> and I'm not sure how wet your fleece got to get. But I'm kind of scratching my head, and I'm kind of going, well, Lord, you know, we're going to keep walking because it's evident that you continually continue to open doors and lead and guide our paths. And it's just overwhelming, uh, you know, sometimes how little faith I really have in a God who can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. And yet at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's exactly God's answer, but it certainly is help as, as we... <laughs> continue walking in the direction that we're going and I thought it was interesting God's timing and so you know now I guess if we would just continue to have those types of phone calls and conversations uh, that ought to become increasingly clear what it is that God wants to do but I use that as an example of, you know, how do you know what God's will is in your life? How do you know the direction that he's leading? How do you know if his hand is in something? You know, people talk about fleeces. People talk about fasting, you know, giving up food to seek out God and God's will, to set aside the time we normally would spend, you know, to prepare a meal and to eat a meal and to clean up after a meal and say, I'm going to spend this time just in, in devoted prayer to God. God, you know, help me to understand. God, give me direction. Give me counsel. There are people who flip coins, you know, leaving it up to the, you know, flip of a coin. In the old, you know, back in the Old Testament days, they called it drawing lots, you know. They would just draw a straw, and whatever was the longest straw, that was God's will. And they trusted God in that decision. 
True story, Francis Schaeffer was struggling with whether God was calling him into full-time Christian ministry. And he was deciding whether to be, I think, an engineer or to go into ministry. And he wasn't sure what God wanted him to do. And so he, picked out, he, he pulled out a coin out of his pocket and he flipped the coin and he said, Okay, God, if it's heads, you're calling me into ministry. And he flipped the coin and it came down and it was heads. And he said, Okay, God, if it's tails, I'm going into ministry. And he flipped it again and it came down and it was tails. And he said, God, be patient with me. I just want to make sure I got this right. And he flipped the coin again and said, If it's heads, I'm going into ministry. And it came down and it was heads again. He went into full-time Christian ministry, and the rest is history as far as his impact that he's had for the kingdom of God. But he also said, he goes, you know what, I'm not sure I would give anyone that counsel to follow God's will for their life. He goes, but I'm just telling you from a personal example, that's how God led me to full-time Christian service. He flipped a coin. Now, I'm not sure that you would be looking for leaders of this church who would decide to buy a piece of property, well, we just flipped the coin. And we said, God, if it's heads, we're in. If it's tails, we're not. You know, it's like, well, wait, you got anything else up there? <laughs> you know, some people focus on feelings, you know, obeying their feelings and their, that, that, that get feeling that what we call sometimes that discernment that, you know what, I know that everything seems to be wrong, but yet at the same time, it doesn't violate God's expressed will and his word. And I believe this is where God is leading. I know when my business partner and I started our business many years ago, it was in the middle of a recession, and people thought, what are you doing? You're crazy. What are you starting a business in the middle of a recession? And we were convinced, and not only were he and I convinced, our families were convinced. We had prayed about it. God led to that point and said, you know what? I know this doesn't make sense to anyone but us, but we're convinced this is where God is leading. And we set out to do what we believed God wanted us to do. And the bottom line is, is that, you know, in many instances in life, as long as it doesn't violate expressly revealed will of God, God leads us quite individually. When the rest of the world thinks you're crazy, sometimes God says, I, I want you to trust me so that I can, through your weakness and through the, what looks like the silliness of your decision, be glorified in that I'm not limited as the world seems to be limited in its decision-making processes. Some do what we call floundering. They fish everywhere for answers. Some make decisions based on defaulting, you know, letting the events just decide and taking no action whatsoever. Or dipping random Bible verses. You dip into the Word of God. Or delegating, you know, please, somebody else make my decision. And there were many times in life that I wish somebody would just come and say, this is what you have to do. But there are many times where it's like, you know what? There isn't anyone to do that. I'm finding that even as we go from one oncologist to another, there's no one who's definitively saying, this is what you need to do. And so as a result, we're finding that there's nowhere to turn but to God. And and Linda and I, as we pray about the decisions that have to be made, it's like there's no definitive answer. And when there's no definitive answer, that's the best place to be in life because it means we've got to totally rely upon God. You know, visions or dreaming or drawing straws, like I said. Sitting, just sitting around and waiting and things will just happen on their own. You know, sliding, taking the path of least resistance. You know, thinking, which is using your own logic and reasoning. Ignoring even feelings or discernment. And, you know, I agree with J.I. Packer when he stated this. He said, in our quest for God's guidance, we become our own worst enemies. And oftentimes that's true. 
So the question I have is the same one that I asked a moment ago. How does one go about making decisions in life? And we have a definitive answer from the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dependent prayer. Dependent prayer. Dependent prayer is what we learn from Jesus. He lived out the principles that are found in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. With all your heart, unreservedly, without any hesitation, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will set your path straight. To trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do you really trust in the Lord with all your heart when it comes to making decisions? Do you believe that when he says, cast all your cares upon me and I will care for you, that he'll really do that? See, oftentimes in life what happens is we're told, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust what? Trust him when he says, the old you is dead to sin, the new you is alive to God. Trust you when he says that old things pass away. You come from an environment of alcoholics. You come from an environment of drug abusers. You come from an environment of, you know, abusers, period. You come from an environment where you're just beaten down and ridiculed emotionally, physically, and otherwise. And that's all that you knew in life. And he says, trust him that that is gone. Trust him with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. Your own understanding is, but, 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 but. That's what our understanding does. But you don't understand. But you've never been there. But you haven't experienced it. You don't know what it's like. You grew up with Ozzie and Harriet, you know, and I grew up with Lucifer and the clan. You know what I'm saying? You don't know. You grew up in this lily-white existence over here where everything was prim and proper, and I grew up here hiding under the bed when my dad was beating up my mom. You don't understand. Hey, but, 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 don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will set your path straight. He has reached down from heaven. He has called you from darkness to light. He has grabbed you out of the muck and mire, and He's pulled you out. He's cleaned you off in the righteousness of Christ He has dusted you off and He has made you whole. He has imparted Christ's righteousness to you. And He has now adopted you as a son or daughter into His family. And you no longer are a beggar living off the streets. You're a child of the King. And don't let the devil ever lie to you that you're anything less. And it's not because you are worth it or worthy or anything. It's because He chose you. And that's what we learn from this passage. Trust, lean, depend on him and not on oneself. See his hand in everything. You know, there's a classic old story about a man who was caught in a flood. And as the water rises, he climbs to the roof of his house and he wants to be rescued. A guy in a motorboat comes by and says, hop in and I'll save you from the flood waters." And the man says, no thanks, I'm praying my God will deliver me. The floodwaters continue to rise. A few minutes later, a rescue plane flies overhead, and the pilot drops a line and says, Jump on, get in. And he says, No thanks, my Lord will rescue me. 
but the floodwaters instantly rise even higher and finally they overflow the roof and the man eventually drowns. When he gets to heaven, he confronts God and says, God, I pray that you would save me. And God looked at him and said, you fool, I sent you a boat and a plane. You know, and oftentimes in life, that's exactly where we are. We're looking for something so supernatural that we don't see that everything that God does is supernatural. We don't see when we get up and He gives us life today what a gift that is until you face death. We don't see what a blessing it is to be able to walk until you think maybe you won't have the use of one leg. We don't know what a blessing it is to be able to read the Word of God until you start having a problem with your eyesight. We don't know how wonderful it is to hear the cries of our children or the needs of our spouse with our ears until all of a sudden they're a distant memory and we cannot hear. My point is very simple. We have lost sight of God's supernatural and we have taken it for granted as if it's the natural course of life and everything in our life is supernatural because it comes from the hand of God. I pray that you and I never lose sight of God's hand in everything. Whether to send a rowboat or an airplane, whether to send, you know, to, to put us in the jobs that we have, the, the position that we're in to make money that we make, the health that we have, the children that we have, the grandchildren that we have. I hope that we never take any of these things for granted because all of them are a gift from God. And it's arrogance and prideful foolishness to think anything else. You fool, I sent you a boat and an airplane. Jesus' life was lived in total submission and total dependence upon the Father. He voluntarily laid aside his desires and his prerogatives, according to Philippians 2, in favor of the Father's will. His prayer life reflected the command found in James 1.15. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him seek of God who gives generously and above reproach. If you're making a decision, you don't know how to make it, you don't know what to do, then go to God, depend upon Him, seek His wisdom. And He said, I'm not going to turn you away. I've encouraged you. I want you to come to me. His dependent prayer is what Paul wrote to the Philippians about in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, where he says, Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything but in prayer. But in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is the example that we see. The point is simple. Though we may face many decisions in a lifetime, God's people should be comforted in that we have a good shepherd to lead, to guide, to direct, as we see in Psalm 23. We have access to the Father through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We have an advocate in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a counselor in the Holy Spirit and God's word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. If we trust Him, lean on Him, obey His word, He will remove all the obstacles in our way and don't try to grab it back. We turn it over to Him and we go, no, 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 I'm not sure, right, give it back. Like somehow you know better than God. What are you kidding me? Just give it up. But so many times we lean on our own understanding, you know, but I'm an expert in this area. You know, listen to me. I, I don't want to burst your bubble. I don't care how much of an expert you think you are in your chosen area of profession. You don't know anything compared to God. Period. 
I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with people. I, I mean, seriously, I, I am just, I, I'm mind boggled. I'm overwhelmed. I, I'm just, I'm looking at people who have spent their whole life in the, in the, in the practice of medicine. And somebody, somebody told me once, that's why they call it practice. Um, <laughs> The practice of medicine, they've got more degrees than I could ever dream of. I'm just amazed at their knowledge. I'm amazed at their dedication. I'm amazed at their commitment to help people. I'm amazed at the hours that they put in. It's like, man, I was in a hospital. I'd wake up at like at 4 in the morning, and one of them would be standing there. And like, you know, at 6 at night, they'd be back. And it's like, man, don't you people ever sleep or rest because you're not letting me. And, 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 and so it's kind of like, it's just amazing. And yet at the same time, I'm coming to recognize that, you know what? You could spend your whole life studying something and only know a little bit about it. And you could be one of the brightest, most intelligent people that God has ever put on the face of the earth. But when it comes to understanding God, that's when I just go, wow, now I know what it means. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You can have a person who's all their life, they study the human eye, and at the end of all of it, they still can't make an eye that won't see, see. Isn't that just amazing? That's, I mean, it's just amazing to me. But it also is humbling to me because it makes me realize no matter how sharp I think I am, I don't know anything compared to God. So why would I want to lean on my understanding when I know I don't understand much versus leaning on one who understands everything? Point. Don't take it back. Depend on him. And let me also give you another warning. If you recall in our last message, it was, it's possible to miss God's message by the misuse of Scripture. The following, some of you may have heard, it's a classic story. I love this. And it goes to you know, how one guy determined to find God's will. He, he was doing what I call the flip and point method. The flip and point method is you get your Bible out, you flip and you point, right? And it's a classic story. He was troubled by what he should do. He flipped open his Bible to Matthew 27, 5, and there he read, and Judas went out and hanged himself. <laughs> he wasn't quite sure that was God's will for his life, so he flipped and pointed to another passage in Luke 10, 37. It says, go and do likewise. He was a little still troubled by it. He flipped and pointed again, and the final passage was John 13, 27, where it says, and what you do, do quickly. <laughs> you know, we laugh at the absurdity of such a method of trying to determine God's will, yet often we're guilty of treating the Bible in the same way. We don't necessarily flip and point, but we go through it looking for what it is that we want it to say, and then we go, there, I finally find the verse. And it's not really the verse because it's part of this verse and then I've got to jump down to part of this verse and I'll put those two together and I'll make a new verse and which is a book I'm writing called Second Opinions, Chapter 2. And, and therefore, it now gives me what it is that I'm looking for. The question is, how can we avoid such a foolish misuse of the Bible? And, and, I, and, I, and I told you last week, I'm going to reinforce it as it falls in line with this. We go to God with an open mind. We seek His will. And we go with a needy heart, reflecting a humble spirit that says, God, you know what? I'm willing to receive your instruction regardless of what it means for me in my life. A second truth that, that uh, emerges in Jesus' supplication to the Father is found in what I would call the, uh, the diligent process. And I want you not to miss this where he said he spent the whole night in prayer to God. He spent the whole night to prayer in God. I want to share with you one of the loneliest ministries you can be involved in in a church, and it's called the prayer ministry. 
have a prayer ministry saying, hey, we're going to have a prayer, you know, we have a prayer meeting at such and such a time. You, you don't have to worry about valet parking. You don't have to worry about two-story parking structure. Uh, you don't have to worry about any of that because most people just kind of like, well, pray. Well, I'm glad somebody's praying. But as far as me, I don't really have much time. And all I'd say is this, you know what? When you don't have time to pray, you don't have time not to make time to pray. I mean, the reality of it is, is that, you know, stop and think about this, man. This was not, you know, one of those quick, now I lay me down to sleep. I had a friend who used to play professional football, and he taught his kids to pray at dinner time. And some of you might find this a little bit heresaical or sacrilegious, but I'll share it with you because it makes a point. He used to teach his little kids to pray, yubba-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God. Now, now you got to understand his mentality. He was very sincere about this, and that was just the world that he lived in. But some of us, that's the extent of our prayer life. Now I lay me down to sleep and yubba-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God, and let's move on with our life. And the bottom line is, bottom line is that, uh, see, talk about prayer, man. Nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> but we're told that Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. You know, from sunset to sunup, from 8 a.m. to 6 a.m., I want you to stop and just let that sink in. Ten hours in diligent, focused prayer. He spent the whole night, that phrase translated from the Greek means preserving energy, persevering energy. A persevering energy he wouldn't let go until he had a clear answer from his father. And the question is, why did he spend the whole night in prayer? The answer is found very, right in front of us because he had an important decision to make. Out of the multitudes of disciples who followed him, what was on his heart that night before God the Father, why such a lengthy engagement with him, he had a huge decision to make regarding who would compose the 12. Those 12 men that he would entrust his message to be carried to the world. The work that Jesus Christ began, according to Luke in his second writing in the book of Acts, that which he began to do was then followed up and is now in process by those he entrusted to it. Jesus had numerous disciples. There were multitudes. In fact, at one point he sent 70 of them out. And here we learn that it was conceivable that during those 10 hours he presented maybe each of those disciples to his father one by one. Is this the one you want? Is this the one you want? Is this the one you want? He's the one? Fine. Is this the one you want? And he determined the 12 through diligent, dependent prayer upon God the Father. How do we know that God the Father revealed those names to him? Because in John chapter 17, in the great prayer of Jesus, he said, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. I have revealed you to those, those 12 that you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. In John 8, 28, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own, but seek just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what is pleasing to him. I want you to stop and think. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, though he created everything, though he is the alpha, the omega, though everything is moving toward and will culminate in him, he could not live his human life apart from dependent prayer and reliance upon the Father. And if that doesn't make a point, I don't know what does. Because if the eternal Son of God could not function as Jesus without dependent prayer, how much more is it essential for us 
as adopted sons and daughters. What foolishness it is to frame our lives with momentary, passing, loose, just inch-deep prayers when Jesus depended upon God to the degree that diligently he prayed for 10 hours in this particular occasion for the decision that he was about to make. When was the last, when was the last time you diligently prayed about a matter? I'm not very patient. You know, the flip and point thing, you know, if I could come up with things other than go hang yourself and hurry up and do it, you know, the flip and point thing is more my personality, but I'm learning to become much more patient and to wait upon God, not get out in front of Him. But I'm just going to tell you, the other side of it is, you know what, and there's a time to act. You know, some where I'm still praying about it, I'm still praying about it. You know what? There are some things that you're praying about you don't need to pray about anymore because God's given the answer. If you're praying about whether you'll be obedient or not, that's another thing. But if you're praying about what it is that God wants you to do, it's just time to do it because God's will for your life is to use the gifts that he's given you to serve him and his kingdom and to build up his body. So if you've got a gift that God is leading you to use and you say, I'm praying about using it, there's a point in time where I'm just going to say, you know what, t t prayer is over, it's time to use the gift. Prayer is over, it's time to rebuild the wall. Prayer is over, it's time to act upon what you know God is calling you to do and stop using prayer as an excuse to be... If this thing will work, then that will be good too. Let's pray about that. So, I, you know, and, and, and as we move on... I... Wire. You don't know, okay, you're the sound tech guy. You got it right here on your sleeve, man. It says sound tech. <laughs> See what I'm talking about? He's an expert at this, and he doesn't know anything like he thinks he knows. I'm just kidding, you know. Kidding. I love you, man, because I know you could shut me off right now, and I'll never get turned back on. We'll, we'll talk about this later. Okay, so anyway, but on a serious note, getting back to a very serious note, I thank God for those at this church who have committed to pray for this body, for this group of men who are leading. I thank God for that. I thank God for you who are praying for me. I thank God for those who take time to take their requests before God. Because you know what? The effective prayers of righteous men accomplish much. God hears prayer. They meet every Tuesday at Ann Harrison's house. There's plenty of room that's there. If you want to join, if you want to get serious, if you say, you know what, I can't do anything, let me tell you something. There's one thing you can always do, and that is pray. I don't care how limited you are physically, you can pray. And I encourage you, I challenge you to be involved in that because, man, I want this ministry to be bathed to be washed, to be surrounded, uh, to be uplifted uh, by the foundation of prayer so that we know whatever we decide to do, it's because God is moving in that direction and we're moving in obedience. When the Son came up, Jesus knew the Father's will, so he acted with decisive authority. We see his selection of the followers in verses 13 through 16. When the day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them. There was time to act. God 
Father, reveal them to me. He did, and immediately he chose them, and he also named them as apostles. It was by divine appointment that we see this take place. A clear example of divine appointment, sovereign election. None of the 12 sought, lobbied, or campaigned for the appointment. They weren't like the guys and gals that are out there running for governor of California. They're not out there trying to gather up votes. They're not out there trying to get people on their side. They're not slamming down the opposition. None of them had any inkling that this was about to take place that day. They didn't campaign. They didn't seek it. They didn't lobby it. They were divinely chosen just as later Saul of Tarsus, who would meet the risen Savior, was divinely chosen and met his divine appointment. The reality of it is very simple. Saul of Tarsus was an enemy of Jesus Christ and the cause of Christ, and yet he he met his divine appointment on the road to Damascus. There are some people who are very troubled by what's called the doctrine of election. They think somehow it negates free will. But I'm just here to tell you and encourage you, freedom of choice and divine election or sovereignty are taught clearly in the Bible how they both work with one another we know one thing is that God clearly teaches both and sometimes you know what it just means that God's a lot smarter than us how it all works out but at the end of the day I see examples of divine selection all throughout scripture and I believe that God chose and called me I believe he chooses and calls any that he chooses and calls from darkness that come to faith into Christ and are now walking in his excellent light in fact you know in the tumult years ahead, they could comfort themselves that Jesus, not they, were responsible for the choice. Their number matched that of the tribes of Israel. They would be sent out as the Messiah's official emissary uh, to the nation. And as such, they'd also have power and authority that Jesus would give them. We'll see that in Luke chapter 9. After Pentecost, they became official witnesses and leaders of the new community of the Christian church. And some of of them would go on to become inspired writers of the New Testament. But when Jesus chose them, they were all unknown. They were the foolish things of the world that were chosen and set aside to, to set aside the cleverness of the world. This was the original no-name offense. I mean, except for Judas, every one of them were Galileans. They were all country boys. Four of them were fishermen. One of them was a hated tax gatherer. Not one of them was rich or famous or noble or well-connected. Not one of them was a scribe or priest or elder or ruler of the people. They were all, as their detractors later said and labeled them, they were unschooled, ordinary men. Why in the world should we listen to them? And how can they be doing the things that they did? It blew everybody away because you know why? God thinks outside the box because God created the box. They were like the walk-on, undrafted free agent who goes on to become a league MVP. They were like the stock boy, Kurt Warner of the St. Louis Rams, who becomes MVP of the Super Bowl and not just the supermarket. God raised them up to do a great work for, them, for him. And on the three gates, on the east and the north and the south and three on the west, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I love that. See, when God calls ordinary men and women to serve Him, His call is always effectual regardless of their apparent abilities or lack of them. This should be a great source of encouragement. This should be a great source of comfort for each one of us. One of the supreme glories of God's call is that our weakness is the opportunity for his power. As I read through scripture and I read about men like Moses and Gideon and David and Jeremiah, I read that before Jeremiah was conceived in his mother's womb, God said, I consecrated you, I set you aside to be my messenger. 
And people, oh, did he have a choice? What, matter, what difference does it make? He was obedient to that calling. He was obedient to that consecration. He lived out the life that God had ordained for him to live. Moses said, but I can't do this. And God says, I know you can't. That's why I chose you. He said, well, why would he listen to me? Hey, tell him that you're my messenger. Well, but, 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 but I, I can't talk. I got all these excuses. Hey, you know what? Perfect. Because then you know when I work through you, it's not you because you know that you can't do anything. This is going to work out great. <laughs> David, oh, all his brothers marched before him. Samuel, oh, is this the one? Is this the one? You know, oh, no, Nathan, no, oh, no, it's not the one. Who is it? Is this all your sons? Well, no, it's none of them. The guy that I chose is out in the field shepherding the sheep. Call him and bring him in. He's the one that I chose. Divine election, divine appointment. And it's okay because it's God. That's what he does. Consider these words of Oswald Chambers. He said, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abundant abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. You know, I cherish this. I cherish this statement because it summarizes my own experiences and because it's consistently confirmed by the history of the church throughout Scripture, it's verified. I like what Abraham Lincoln said. He said, God must have liked ordinary people because he made so many of them. I'm encouraged by this because I resemble that remark. You know, I take comfort knowing that I'm in the position that I am today not because I campaigned, sought, or lobbied for it, but I'm here by the divine appointment of God. An ordinary guy, but he's only a contractor. And he has this athletic background. An ordinary guy, a contractor with an athletic background, called by an extraordinary God divinely appointed by God to proclaim his message, to protect and provide and pray for and care for God's people. And I, as we, must trust that God knows what he's doing. Just as Jesus saw a a Matthew and Levi and a Paul and Saul of Tarsus, so he sees the same in you and I who have trusted in Christ and don't lean on our own understanding but in all our ways acknowledge him. He sees who he will make you become before he's even chosen you, before the foundation of the world. And you know what? The way I look at it is this. I don't have any pressure on me at all because when God chooses, he enables, he he equips, and he empowers. And the only thing that he requires of me is that I do justly and I love mercy and I walk humbly with him every day. See, the Apostle Paul understood that. The Apostle Paul, Saul, who was named after the great king of Israel, Saul, this great and mighty one, chose the name Paul, which means small. Think about that. Big Saul voluntarily became small Paul when he saw Jesus Christ. Paul's writings powerfully substantiate his ordinariness 
even his weakness, when he wrote these words to the Corinthians. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You know, the Jews had a habit of taking valuable things and putting them in just simple earthen jars of clay. And they would bury them and hide them and protect them from being stolen. The Dead Sea Scrolls are an example of a, of a valuable treasure that was put in the jars of clay and buried in the earth. And I don't want you to miss what he's saying. He's saying that we, have, we are those jars of clay, the frailty of humanity that God has chosen to, to stick inside of us, so to speak, not only the, his very presence and we become the temple of God, but also he entrusts to us the very message of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This very valuable message has been entrusted to you and I, these fragile human beings who are likened to jars of clay. Remember, man, that thou art dust, and unto dust you shall return. He has put into our life the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's plan of salvation, the way of redemption, He has given to you and I the answer that every person is looking for. What is life all about? Is there a creator? Can we know him? What is his plan and purpose for us? And he says very simple, that every person should repent of their sin and respond by God's grace through faith to the finished work of Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection, and receive him as Lord and Savior, and you shall be forgiven. That is the most valuable message that any person could ever hear this side of eternity. And it's been entrusted to us, frail human beings, with warts and all. And you know what? And God trusts that we'll be able to do the work that he's called us to do because it's all about him and not about us. Relax and get busy doing what God has called you to do. We need to embrace this paradox that it's in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. We need to embrace the paradox that, you know what, when we don't know anything is when we're in the position to learn everything that it is that God wants us to know. We need to embrace the paradox that we don't have to lean on human understanding and reasoning and we'll trust in God. Very simple. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I'm going to now. When the time comes and we talk about our property, there's not going to be another outside organization that comes in and campaigns. We're not going to have pie charts and graphs and all this trickery and smoke and mirrors. The bottom line is we're going to clearly tell you, here's where God has led us. Here's what this property is worth. Here's what we're buying it for. Here's the money that we have. And if you want to be a part of it, praise God, pray about it, and just allow God to move in your life. That's the extent of our building campaign. And a whole bunch of people will go, that's stupid, that's foolish, but you know what? I have complete peace from God that that's the way we're going to do it. In closing, have you heard his voice calling you to repentance and to trust in him? his death and his resurrection for your sins? Have you responded to his call and are you still or are you still ignoring his voice? Today is the day of the Lord. Wait no longer. Do you have the freedom to choose? Yes, you do. You have the freedom to respond and receive him as Savior. You have the freedom to reject him. But I also know that God is sovereign. And if he's calling you, then surrender your heart to him. For those who are born again, we must live our lives in dependent prayer, diligently seeking God's will in every area. 
we can take comfort knowing that Jesus' authority is eternally effectual. He sovereignly called 12 nobodies whose names will forever be written on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem except for Judas Iscariot who was replaced by Matthias. And when he chooses nobodies like us, he writes our names in the eternal book of life. It is all about him and not about us. That's why people go, can you lose your salvation? Hey, listen, you know what? If God saved you, you won't be lost. To all who are given to Jesus, he will in no way cast them out. We are in the wonderful, loving, protective hands of God, and no one can take us from him. That's what he wrote to the Romans when he said, what can separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus? Can anything? No. And the point is, no, nothing can. And he summarizes by saying, nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. If you're God's child, then you are his child for now and for all of eternity. And he's already written your name in the book of life. What a wonderful truth that is. As with the apostles, the calls to ministry that come to each one of us are also endowed with the power uh, to live out the call. Our ordinariness is the occasion for his extraordinariness, our weakness for his power. And because all of authority in heaven and earth are his, nothing makes sense except absolute submission to his will and a humble, prayerful dependence in every area of our life. Do you depend on him for everything? Do you diligently pray about the matters that are before you? Do you trust in him with all your heart? And not lean on your own understanding. If you do, he promises that he will guide your paths. He will make them straight. He will remove every obstacle. And he will never disappoint you. He will never let you down. Let's pray. Father, what a great word today from you. What an encouragement. What a comfort to know that we who have trusted in Christ have access to the very throne room of heaven through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through his death and the power of his resurrection, we have an advocate who lives day and night to intercede on our behalf. What a joy it is to know that we have the Holy Spirit's presence in our life as a down payment of the promises to come, who also guides us into all truth, who convicts us of sin and judgment and righteousness, who lets us know when we're wrong before God so that we can get right and confess our sins to get back on the path that is right. God, I pray for those who are here today who are looking at their past and hanging on to it as an excuse for their disobedience in your word today. May they identify more clearly with your death and your burial. May they be raised in the newness of life. May they walk in a manner worthy of their calling. May they never look back in the rearview mirror, but only to remember the good things that you have done in their life and not to dwell on the past when it comes to sin or an excuse for behavior today. And may we, as the Apostle Paul said, press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.